Over 2,000 years ago, two disillusioned disciples walked along a dusty road to Emmaus. They had just witnessed Jesus, their friend and leader, whom they hoped to be the Messiah, suffer a gruesome death by crucifixion. Doubt, fear, and uncertainty clouded their conversation as they journeyed home questioning the future. Until something miraculous happened. The risen Jesus appeared and answered their questions. Today, many young Catholics step onto college campuses with numerous questions about their faith, yearning to know if the seed of faith given to them as a child is both true and practical. Using the miracle on the road to Emmaus as a model, young adult ministers conversed weekly for three months with college students about the most pressing questions they had about the Catholic faith. As they journeyed together virtually, something amazing happened. Doubts disappeared, fears faded, and Jesus revealed that he is still alive. Hearts Burning Within Us, the latest book from Patchwork Heart Ministry, scheduled to be released in the summer of 2021, is a result of that grace-infused conversation. To pre-order your copy and help spread the word about the book, visit patchworkheart.org. Welcome to the Sewing Hope Podcast. This is a show all about implanting hope in our hearts. I'm Bill Snyder, joined by my friend Ann DeSantis. We're glad you're here for our uplifting conversation about faith and how it sustains our hearts through all the seasons of life. Thanks for walking with us. And good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Sewing Hope Podcast. I am Bill Snyder. It's great to be with you, and happy Holy Week to each and every one of you. Uh, tonight begins the Triduum, so thank you so very much for joining us here on Holy Thursday evening. And uh, as always, I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Andy Santis, and we're going to have an awesome conversation tonight, Anne. So thank you so much for being here, as always. Yeah, great to be here, Bill. And I was particularly excited about this episode. We have an amazing guest, and I'm going to read her bio. Uh, Kay Heidi Fishman grew up in West Hartford, Connecticut. After graduating from Williams College, she received both an MA and an EDD in counseling psychology from Western Michigan University. As a psychologist at Dartmouth College, she specialized in working with people with eating disorders and histories of trauma. While Heidi always knew her mother and grandparents were Holocaust survivors, she didn't, re she didn't start researching their story until she retired. Five years of investigation led to Tootie's Promise, 2017 MB Publishing Bethsaida, which while fictionalized for the purpose of allowing conversations among characters, follows the Lichtenstern's true story from May 10th, 1940 in Amsterdam through two Nazi camps, liberation and resettlement. The book contains a significant number of original documents. Kay Heidi Fishman won the Joseph Zola Memorial Holocaust Educator Award from the Maurice Greenberg Center for Judaic Studies at the University of Hartford. Tootie's Promise was designated 
by the National Council for the Social Studies and the Children's Book Council as a notable trade book for young people and has won numerous other awards. Heidi speaks to schools and community groups in order to teach about the perils of prejudice and bigotry. She's made multiple visits to USHMM in Washington, D.C. to sign copies of Tootie's Promise. Pre-COVID, she traveled to schools throughout the United States. In this time of COVID, she presents to schools remotely. She lives in Vermont with her husband and her aging border terrier. When she isn't staying home due to COVID safety measures, she likes to travel and discover new places and meet new people. And I think this is the perfect place, although we're online, to meet new people because uh, it's a whole other audience here for you. Thank you so much for joining us, Heidi. Well, it's a pleasure to be here this evening. You have a beautiful bio. And thanks for sharing it because uh, you've done so much and how you were led to uh, get involved with Tootie's Promise is just also incredible. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's just been a, um, it's been a ride, put it that way. So I never thought I was going to write a book. That was never anything in my um, upbringing of what, where I thought I would go. When I was in school, you know, middle school, when I was supposed to be studying history, all I wanted was science and math. I steered away from, from words. I was a numbers girl. Um, in college, I avoided writing classes, didn't want to do them. <laughs> and then uh, in 2012, my mother came to my daughter's uh, seventh grade class to tell the students about what she experienced during the Holocaust. And during that talk is when I decided a book had to be written. Mm. This was not just a story for our family. This needed a wider audience. It needed to be preserved. It was important. The kids were really resonating with things my mother was saying. And then my first thought was, okay, I have to find an author. Who can write the book? <laughs> and the more I thought about it, it was... I had to write the book because I was the one who could cap capture my grandparents' voices um, who have since passed. I could capture my mother's voice and I could really push my mom to, to tell the whole story, not just what she thought was appropriate for the kids, but like dig deeper. So yeah. I, I went back, you know, I had a doctoral degree, but I went back to school taking any, any workshop class I could find, a community college class on how to write. Mm. And I ended up with a book that got published. So, oh, praise God! Wow, <laughs> wow, just just incredible. I, you know, uh, thank you so much uh, for for doing that because, um, you know, the the Holocaust. I think um, while it is an incredibly difficult topic to talk about, um, it is something that is so very important for us today to understand as. As it kind of even mentioned in your bio, you know, talking about bigotry and overcoming that and not, um, you know, succumbing to that. We're, we're, we're seeing so much of that in our culture right now. We're seeing it, it's so relevant. Um, so I, I would love to just maybe for you to touch on the importance of, of preserving it, uh, you know, as you kind of alluded to, you know, touch on the importance of preserving it. And, and what were some of the elements that were so worthy of being um, preserved for you? Well, one thing about my mother's family 
during that time, it was, it's an incredibly unusual story. They were in two different concentration camps for a total of about 18 months. But my mother survived. She was just about, just before her 10th birthday when they were liberated. And her younger brother was with her. Her parents were with her and her father's parents. So one set of grandparents were with her. Three generations survived together in one camp, which is pretty unheard of. Uh, most survivors made it out. They were the only ones of their family who made it out or you know, one distant cousin made it out or you know, they knew where one brother was or something to that effect. But this was three generations that survived all together. Um, of course, the whole family did not survive as far as my grandmother's parents were um, on the last train from the camp they were at to Auschwitz and were gassed. Uh, my mother had a dear uncle who died early in the war, uh, also in Auschwitz. Um, and then there's lots of the more distant relatives who did not make it. But the fact that they were able to stay together gave them so much hope. Uh, that, you know, if you know where your mother is, if you know where your children are, if you can hug them at the end of the day, it makes a huge difference in your energy and survival because hope, hope just, you know, comes from the heart and it, and it helps in every way. So I, I guess the story was just so important because I wanted kids to realize that even in the worst circumstances, there's something to hang on to. And also in the worst circumstances, they can be a hero. I mean, sometimes you're the victim of the situation, but sometimes you can step in and be the hero. And it doesn't have to be in a huge way. It might be doing something that seems small, but it makes a huge difference in somebody else's life. So those are some of the messages that, is, that are in there. And I just had to put them on paper. Mm. Wow, that's incredible. I, I love even the cover of the book itself is is interesting. And it's a picture of her and also a map. And it says a novel based on a family's true story of courage and hope during the Holocaust. So and then the picture, is that is that her then when she was uh, at that age, right that's, around that age? That's my mom from 1944. OK, wow. so and, and I have inside the book, there's more pictures um, on my website. There's even more family pictures. Um, my website, just if I can say it out oh, yeah. here. Please um, do. It, it's called Papia and Me. P-O-P-J-E. Papia and Me. Papia is the name of my mother's doll. Um, so uh, that's where I came up with that. And there's all these family photographs. And there's these documents, um, you know, actual Nazi documents about things that they were going on. And... You know, when I was looking at the book, I'm going to write this and I go into my parents' house and I'm like, mom, what do we have? Is there anything? And, you know, she points me to the, the one uh, drawer in the back of the closet and I start pulling things out and I'm like, oh my goodness, this is a treasure trove in here. The things that my grandmother hung on to, you know, the, the, the picture on this book was obviously a um, portrait studio you know, an actual photographer, my mother, my grandmother had the, the forethought to bring the children to photographers every year and have a picture taken of them. And then she was able to keep them. Um, you know, she couldn't have kept them on her own person if she was in a concentration camp. She gave them to friends 
who held on to them during the war and gave them back afterwards. Wow. So we have a lot of this preserved because of the, you know, they're called, you know, the righteous Gentiles, the, the people who helped by another way, by keeping their things and giving them back at the end of the war. Mm. So. I have to mention, if I could, because the beginning of the podcast would be great for people to know your website right now in case they say, you know what, I know enough. I want to get that book. And you go to kheidifishman.com. I want to mention that this book is the recipient of a Gold Moonbeam Children's Book Award, named a notable social studies trade book for young people, winner of two silver Benjamin Franklin Awards, plus a silver Nautilus Award winner. So I, there's so much there. And um, what was the process like for you? Because obviously when you made this decision to write the book and you, you like you said, you, you, you even became educated on writing. So what, how long did the process take and what was it like for you on a personal level? Well, it was, it was five years from the time I said, I wanna write a book till it was published. Hmm. And I have to admit when I started, I had no idea what I was doing. I was like, I'm just going to take all mom's stories that she tells and I'll string them together and it'll be a book. And I started that and I said, this is a terrible book. This is not <laughs> going to work this way. Um, and I, I just kept my eye open for any writing workshop. Um, any, there was some community college classes I took and I just kept working it. I, I, I didn't really know what it was going to look like. I didn't know where I was going but I just kept working, trying to put the stories together and it, and it just started to have a life of its own. I think books do that sometimes that there's only one place you can go from this place to that place. You know, the, it, it just leads you there. Um, of course, I wasn't, it wasn't like writing a novel because I wasn't making up the story. The story was real, but I would keep uncovering more details that, you know, my mother was only 10 at the end of the war. So she didn't know everything that happened. I couldn't ask my grandparents anymore. And I, I learned a lot about researching. I, was, I started online, uh, you know, lying on the couch in the living room and just Googling things, you know, my grandfather's name and, and just various things. And the first thing I found, which was new to me, was I found in the Yad Vashem archives. Yad Vashem is the equivalent of the U.S. Holocaust uh, Memorial Museum that's in Jerusalem. It's, it's, it's Israel's Holocaust Museum. And I was looking around in their archives online and I found a document that was used at the Eichmann trial as evidence against Adolf Eichmann, who was one of the um, top Nazis in charge of the final solution. It was evidence against him with my grandfather's name on the paper. And I'm like, okay, what's going on here? You know, I immediately call my mother, what's this about? And she's like, I have no idea. I don't know what that is. Um, and what I uncovered was like this whole backstory of part of their survival that my mother had no idea about. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, mm -hmm. then I'm hooked. Like, what else am I going to find? Yeah. Um, and it, it just kept going from there. I started a blog um, just about my adventures and learning how to write and learning in the research and what I was uncovering. 
And, and I did that because somebody said, you have to have an online presence if you want to find a publisher. They're not going to, um, nobody's going to publish a book if they've never seen anything else you've written. So I'm writing a blog and, and I'm writing a book. So, you know, I got two jobs, right? <laughs> and um, another piece of the puzzle on how my parent, uh, my, how my mother survived was that they had a fake Paraguay, well, it was a real Paraguayan passport, but the fake part was that they weren't actually Paraguayan. So they had this document saying they were Paraguayan citizens instead of that they were stateless refugees from, the, from Germany who had fled to the Netherlands. And because they had a Paraguayan passport, uh, the Nazis treated them slightly better than the average Jew. Mm. So mom, where did the passport come from? She doesn't know. She just knew she, that the family had it. So I blogged about the passport. And two weeks later, I get an email. Uh, my grandfather helped your grandfather get that passport. And I'm like, really? Well, who are you? Tell me what you know. <laughs> and, and I kept coming like this, the, the, like the universe aligned and things kept coming to me. You know, you put it out there that you're looking for something and then the information comes. It, it was just amazing. Um, so, uh, and then I, I went all over Europe too. I went to Amsterdam. I went to every, every location in the book I went to. Wow. What was that experience like? It, it was, you know, it was everything from um, just really fun to say, oh, this is the street my mom lived on when she was four years old. And, you know, just sort of to pull in that atmosphere to devastating. I spent a day at Trezenstadt, which is now called Terezin. It's a, it's a town in Czechoslovakia, now the Czech Republic, which was the camp that they spent the last part of the war at. And it, that was the most depressing day I think I've ever had because it's a, it was a town that was turned into a concentration camp that is now a struggling town again. And I was, I was sitting at a restaurant having lunch in this town and I knew the building I was in had been a barracks where people had starved to death during the war. And it's like, how do you wrap your head around that? Mm. You know, it, you don't, it, yeah. it's like, I, it just doesn't compute, mm -mm. but the, you know, there I am having lunch, you know, my, my great grandfather was in that, you know, could have been in that same building starving. It, it's just, how do you put that together? Yeah. You know, it's, so it, it was, there was ups and downs and, and all kinds of emotions going on. Mm. That's wow. so, wow. <laughs> wow. I can see you both are like speechless. You don't yeah. know what yeah, to say. Yeah, we're speechless. Yeah. We're speechless because I'm imagining it. And and I, I give you a lot of credit. And boy, how God enlightened you to even do this project because it needed to be done. And you were the right person. I don't think really, you know, maybe my brother could have done it, you know, but I, basically it had to be somebody close to my mom mm -hmm. and somebody who knew my grandparents. You, you know, the decisions that my grandparents made along the way, you know, there's all kinds of decisions they had to make. And I, having known, you know, my, my, my grandmother died when I, I had just graduated from college and my grandfather, you know, about five years after that. So I knew them well, I, I had grown up knowing their personalities. And so I could 
as a psychologist too, sort of try to channel them, so to speak. What, what would my grandfather say here? What would my grandmother do there? And I felt like I really captured them for real in the book. Mm. And that's actually something my mother said when I finally finished the manuscript and she read it for the first time. She said, you brought them back. Mm. Mm. I love the graphic that you sent me. If I could just read this because there's a picture of the wedding and then it says a promise kept is like the twinkling stars in the night sky, a constant reminder of something important that makes you who you are. Can nine-year-old Tootie keep a promise and a secret? Her life, her family's life may depend on it. Talk more about that because first of all, that's a beautiful picture. And I don't want to give the story away for those who are going to purchase the book and buy it and read it. But um, can you talk a little bit about that promise? Um, I can. So before I get to the promise, let me just tell you a little bit about the picture because okay. you know, you're, you're alluding to it. So this is my grandparents' wedding picture. And you know, my grandparents are sitting there in the middle, completely happy. And my grandfather's handsome. Everybody called him, you know, he's, he could have been a movie star. My grandmother's just glowing. And then the, 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 the family's all around them, their parents, their siblings, there's aunts, uncles, cousins um there you can tell they're in a kind of posh place of some sort I don't know where exactly it was but it looks like you know 1932 it's a European hotel setting and everybody's just extremely happy um that's before all the problems started 1932 so the promise okay so I'm going to go back to that um document I found about the Eichmann trial, because this, this is where it, the, it fits together. My grandfather was a metals commodities dealer. So he bought and sold metal internationally. And during the war, obviously the Nazis needed metal. If you're going to fight a war, you need to build your submarines and your airplanes and your bullets, and you need metal for that. So my grandfather basically they let him keep working because he could make arrangements for metal. And then in 1943, the final solution was um, becoming, you know, into reality. And there's an argument between Adolf Eichmann, who wants all the Jews out of the Netherlands and Western Europe and everywhere and there, he's shuttling them to the death camps. And then there's another top Nazi named Albert Speer and Speer was in charge of armaments and munitions and needed metal. They're sending documents back and forth to each other fighting over what to do with the, what they called metal Jews. And it was different documents. Some have three names, some have seven names, some have 12 names. They all have my grandfather's name as the first name on the list. He was the metal Jew. And it was, what do we do with these guys? Spear saying, keep them in the Netherlands. They're helping us and help. I'm going to put in quotes. I'll explain that a little bit later. Eckman saying, no, get rid of them. They have to go. They have to go east. They have to go to the camps. And so what happened was my grandfather ended up in Westerbork, which was the transit camp in Eastern Holland, where basically all the Dutch Jews 
were sent before they were sent to Poland. Well, what used to be Poland, not, it wasn't Poland anymore at that point. And um, my grandfather worked with some friends and they were trying to turn Westerbork into a work camp. So if, you, if the Nazis thought you were useful, you didn't get killed right away. If you were useful, they kept you alive. And so they turned the camp into a scrap metal sorting facility. So an airplane is shot down, it's brought to the camp. Let's, you know, we put the aluminum here, the steel there, the cables in another pile. We sort it all out so that the Nazis can use it. However, my grandfather's friend was in cahoots with the resistance and the sorted metal was then um, basically it was um, taken the resistance would mix the pile back up again and then send it back to the camp to be resorted so that Jews were being busy, but they weren't accomplishing a whole lot. And there was also metal that was sabotaged by if you throw the copper in with the aluminum, it's not going to work the way aluminum is supposed to work. They, they were putting the wrong things in the wrong buckets on purpose too, so that the, the airplanes would fail and, and things to that effect. Okay, so I know this is a long backstory to get to my No, it's okay, promise. it's all right. No, it's fascinating. But otherwise it doesn't make sense. So because my grandfather was doing this, trying to keep people in the Netherlands, and, and it worked, they, there were 1,200 Jews working at the camp not being sent east, which is amazing. Yeah. Um, he was being sent to Amsterdam, to The Hague, to Rotterdam, to find the metal to talk to the metal dealers, to talk to the scrap metal folks to, to, and, and to make the arrangements to have the metal brought to the camp. So he's a prisoner in the camp. My mother's at the camp. My uncle's at the camp. My grandmother's at the camp. And my grandfather's going back and forth into, into town. But he always comes back because of course his family is, are, are held hostage. And on one of these trips into town and coming back, he bought a doll. He bought a brand new doll and he gave it to my mother as her ninth birthday present when she was in the camp. Mm. But it didn't come without strings attached. He says, this is yours, you know, happy birthday. I have put our last bit of money inside it. That money we'll need one day. We'll need it to buy extra food, to bribe someone to stay alive. I don't know what, but it's the only place I can hide it. You are in charge of the doll and the money. Don't let anybody take it away from you. My mother still has that doll. Okay, so that's the promise. Mm. Um, and I there's another. I want to cry. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, there's another promise at the end of the book, which I will not reveal because that's mm -hmm. the very end of the book. Um, but that this promise is in the middle of the book. But that was sort of the main promise that that my mother, as a nine year old, in a in a life and death situation, is put in charge of the family's only valuables. And you know, he said, never let anyone take the doll away. And when I'm writing the book, I mean, I had the doll right in front of me. Like I kind of, she was my muse. There mm -hmm. was Papia. There was my muse. <laughs> now she's now in a, in a museum in Connecticut at the um, okay. 
the University of Hartford, but she still belongs to my mother. Um, you know, she's just on loan. Mm. And um, the money is no longer inside her. Mm. Mm, I just love it. And, and I hope that as many people who are listening, get the book. You know, it's on, it's on Amazon too. It's correct? on Amazon. It's also, you know, it's a Kindle. It's an audio book. I really, really wanted an audio book because when I was a kid, I wasn't a reader. I was a much more of a listener. And when, when I discovered yeah. audiobooks as an adult, I was like, oh, this is so much, this is so great. So it's also an audio book. Well, and- I, you've spoke, spoken the words of my heart because <laughs> I, I love Audible and it's one of my favorite things. So I don't have it yet on Audible, but I'm getting it. Oh, great. <laughs> I'm excited um, about that. And then I, I, it is written geared towards middle, middle school age kids. And on my website, I have... Um, discussion questions to go with it so that whether it's a teacher or a homeschooling either way you, mm-hmm. you can have that family discussion you can you can read the a few chapters together and then look at the questions that I raised and and and, ha- and and have that discussion what what is that what's going on in that chapter why did so and so do this why did so and so do that yeah thank you so much for sharing your story and I can't help but think you said your mother's still alive Mm-hmm. And God bless her too. I mean, uh, and and you were raised by someone who was so deeply affected by that in your own childhood, right? So I wondered if there's anything that you wanted to share with us also about your life, because obviously where you came from made an effect also on your own early life and 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 even to this day. Um, my mother. She, you know, yes, she had some trauma because of this, obviously. On the other hand, my grandmother, in my mind, is a a true hero because she completely sheltered her kids from the worst of it. My mother doesn't remember seeing anybody die. She doesn't remember death. Okay. She Mm. was in a camp where between 33 and 35,000 people died from starvation she doesn't remember death. So my grandmother sheltered her. Okay. And, and the sheltering was, it, it was a way of, um, the attitude was always spoil the children, do everything you can for the children. If there's extra food, it's for the children. If there's extra anything positive, it's for the children. So how did this affect me? I was spoiled. You know, my mother, my mother did everything she could to spoil my brothers and I, you know, the best gifts, you know, everything, anything we wanted, we got. So, you know, it could have, you know, I could have completely become a brat. I, I don't think I'm a complete brat, but the potential was definitely there. Um, you know, anything they want, they get. Mm. So, you know, they really just try to make the best life. Um, my mother, she wanted... All she wanted was to be an American housewife, happy-go-lucky, suburban, you know, mm. when she got to the United States in the 1950s, just sort of that, what that iconic image was, you know, whatever Doris Day was portraying in the movies mm-hmm. that year, that's what she wanted. Um, mm. And she tried to just sort of pass that on to us. So, yeah. Um, you know, the, the other, other children of survivors talk about hearing about the trauma all the time, but that was not mm. our experience. Um, it wasn't, 
My mother didn't talk about what happened. My grandparents didn't talk about what happened. They would answer questions if we asked. You know, if the question came up, what happened? You know, how did you handle this? What happened with that? They would answer. And then the conversation would move on. You know, and, and it made it, they answered in a way that made it sound like, oh, it's not that interesting. So why are you asking any questions anyway? You know, just enough to, to, to quell my curiosity and then move on. So, yeah, it, it sounds like that your grandparents didn't want that trauma to affect any of the future generations in any way at all. Mm -hmm. That's what it sounds like to me. Yep. And and it makes sense that your mother wanted to give you the best because she had experienced. And even though, like you said, she didn't really. Your grandmother tried to protect her, so maybe she didn't have as much trauma as she could have had. Right. Right. It could have been worse, but it at the same time, she was given the doll and said, listen, this is our life savings. Hold on to this doll. And so, you know, your mother was instilled in her. If you think about it, the idea of being that perfect caretaker, to me, it sounds like your mother was instilled in that so much. She, in the United States, wanted to be that perfect housewife, that perfect mother, mm -hmm. right? Because- she saw the other side of that, even though she might not uh, have like wanted to talk about it all, all too often. She wanted to go in a different way with her own kids and just kind of say, you know what, that was a bad time of my life, but the rest of my life is going to be much better. Exactly. Is we're that what it is? I mean, yeah, we're, just... we're moving forward. We're, you know, we don't, we don't dwell in the past. We move forward, mm. which is why I think when I was in school, we had to study history. I was like, why are we bothering with studying history? Is it really important? Um, you know, my mom doesn't even want to talk about history. Why should I study history? So it was all about sort of a forward momentum, how to make, you know, how to take care of the next generation. Sure. Mm. Now, I don't know how old your mother is, and you don't need to talk, you know, disclose that, but has your mother been able to really be able to read and appreciate the book, or is she to a point now with getting older that it's... Oh, oh, she totally appreciates the book. Oh, yes. does she? Oh, you know, and actually, we, um, we still speak at schools together. Oh, my so gosh, your mother. You know, she's in her mid-80s, and oh, okay. she... Um, she goes to school well before the pandemic, you know, she would go to schools and tell the story and mm -hmm. the kids would always be, you know, amazed. They're, they're meeting a survivor. You know, how many, how many students now get to meet a survivor? Oh, your mom is incredible. Um, wow. And now it's getting, you know, it's definitely gotten harder for her in the last year, I'd say before the pandemic, we would do some of the appearances together. And it'd be more like I was telling the story and then I'd say, okay, mom, tell the story now about the doll. Tell the story about your birthday. Tell the story, you know, about the attic, you know, whatever. We'd, we'd pick different spots that she would tell and different ones that I would tell. Um, and then this whole thing now with the pandemic, she, she, she doesn't do Zoom very well. Um, <laughs> okay. That's the technology. The technology is definitely <laughs> hard. Um, but we have done a couple of joint um zoom appearances at schools when i've when i knew you know when i knew i was not positive and i could go visit her and you know mm -hmm. yeah. spend some time in, in my parents house um yeah for sure amazing. <laughs> if you don't mind i'd love to turn the uh, conversation over i know you and i had talked on the phone um as you know this podcast is sowing hope uh we are a Catholic podcast. However, our audience really is, is all over the place, right, Bill? I mean, we yes. have so many um, different uh, people who listen to this podcast. Um, 
And you had mentioned the fact that you yourself are Jewish and that you found out in your doing the research, right? Something about mm -hmm. uh, the, the Jewish religion itself and the history there and how some of those relatives or people that were associated were actually pretty involved in, in religion, whether they were rabbis, I'm not sure, but I would love to hear. Okay, so um, my, you know, I, was not I, I did, was not brought up in a religious household. We were what you call high holiday Jews, um, sort of like the, the, the Catholics who go to mass on Christmas right. and Easter. You know, mm -hmm. we went Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah and that was it. I was actually, um, I, I only went to Sunday school till fourth grade. And then my dad was like, we're just going skiing, you know? So I, I kind of got pulled out of Sunday school because I mm -hmm. went skiing instead. Um, and it was never really, religion was not part of my mother's life growing up either. Um, her, you know, it just, it, she knew she was Jewish, but it wasn't like they did Shabbat dinners or those kind of things in the house. So I'm doing research and I'm looking into, you know, my grandparents and I find out that my, my grandfather's mother, okay, so my I don't know how to put that in maternal and paternal, but my grandfather's mother is the daughter of a rabbi. Okay. It turns out he's the head rabbi of this town in Poland. Okay. So who's his father? He's the head rabbi of another town in Poland. Who's his father? Another head rabbi of whatever <laughs> town. And I can go back to the 16th century where my whatever it is, my 14th great-grandfather's brother is the one who wrote something called the Shulchan Aruch, which is the, um, it lays out all the Judaic laws. So I'm, I'm from a completely orthodox religious family, but it was lost in the generation just before the Holocaust and, and through the Holocaust. Um, and now just to finish that circle, my son has discovered his Judaism. He is mm. Hasidic. He is Hasidic. He's been living in Crown Heights. He goes to a yeshiva. Um, you know, I, I, he can't really eat at my home anymore. I have to go to where he is to eat because he is that kosher. I can't mm. find the kosher food in the middle of Vermont. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you know, so it's come full circle. It has. Oh. I know we talked a little bit about this on the phone and being that this is uh Passover, right? Mm -hmm. I just In thought it would be the perfect time for us to discuss that because and Bill, you know this as well. There's, you know, we as Catholics get our religion basically. I mean, so much of it is from Judaism. I mean, obviously, well, Jesus, Jesus was Jesus Jewish. Was, right. I was just going to say, Jesus was Jewish. <laughs> exactly. Right, right. Exactly. I mean, even the actual um, mass itself, uh, I've heard from Jewish friends of mine that, and, and just in reading about it, that there's so much, right, Bill? Yes. I mean, they come from mm -hmm. the Jewish religion. It's, it's just incredible. Oh, yeah. But yeah, yeah that, that's an amazing thing. I mean, the first five books of the, of the Bible mm -hmm. are the, Jewish Bible, mm -hmm. you know, it is the Torah. Um, mm. So Old Testament is, you know, yeah. starts with Abraham and Isaac, yeah. and that's the Jewish story. Yeah, and we have and so with much your to son. Learn. So, oh, oh, sorry, Bill. <laughs> no, I'm just saying we have so much to learn. You know, from from our 
br- brothers and sisters who are of the Jewish faith. And we have so much to learn, I believe, too, from mm. the Holocaust, right? There is oh, so yes. much to learn from it. And uh, I, I kind of alluded to that at the beginning of the program. But, you know, my, my, my question for you is, you know, you go into all these different schools, you know, and you're talking to these, to these middle schoolers who now have iPhones and they have, you know, these, the, these devices that can Google this stuff within half a second, right? I mean, that's, we live in that culture. We're like, okay, I, I, I want to know what the Holocaust was. Boom, okay, click a button and, and there it is on Google. Um, but there's something that cannot be relayed. The, the experience that you have had in researching it and also that your mother had living it can't, can't be Googled. And so I'm wondering if there's a certain lesson that you're, you know, you know, trying to instill. I mean, you know, probably got, you know, an hour or whatever talking to these kids and answering their questions or whatever as you're, as you're going in and, and doing this. But what are you trying to instill in them, you know, about the, the anger, the bigotry, the hatred that's out there in our world today, um, you know, through, not only through the book, but through interfacing with these, with these young people? What I really want them to learn is, is the empathy for other people that if they can, Amen. if they can put themselves in the shoes of somebody else who's living a different type of life and, and understand that person's challenges that are in front of them and the difficulties in their life, but also the fact that in the end, they want the same thing that that child themselves wants, you know, you want to know your family is safe. You, you, you love your mother. You want to know that the, your house is standing when you come to it. You want to know that there's going to be a, a good meal on the, on the table. You know, these are normal things that everybody expects and they want. And if you then see a child who's told, oh, you're in charge of our life, the only money we have that might save our life. And you're nine years old. And, and in the book, you know, when kids are reading it, they get that. They, they stop and they're like, oh, what if I was in charge of the only money my parents have? What, could I do that? You know? Um, and there's different scenes in the book. I, this book does not have the horror in it. It doesn't have Auschwitz in it. We have the fear of Auschwitz, but we're never, we never, we don't go to Auschwitz in this book. So it is very age appropriate Mm -hmm. for the middle school kids. It's not so over the top that they turn off and they're like, I can't deal with this. This is, this is too much. Mm -hmm. They, they feel the empathy. They, you know, what would Mm -hmm. it be like if I'm in the situation and my brother's missing? What do I do? How would I feel? Yeah. You know, and then, oh, my brother's back. Oh, okay. You, you know, they, they, it, it's just these small moments that I put in the book that happened, but they get it. And, and I was able to put those small moments in the book because those are the ones that my mother remembered because as a child, those are the ones that were most important to her. So, oh, you know. Thank you, Bill. That was a great question. I have to expand on this empathy because um, for me, Personally, on my own life mission, I think we can learn reading, write, writing, math. We can learn uh, how to be good communicators. But in my opinion, the very top of that list, and, and that would even go for religion. And I say this to Bill all the time. You know, we talk about this part of this podcast is that being empathetic to all people, 
right? Mm -hmm. Every single human being, you know, the word Catholic is, is supposed to be, and it, it means universal, right? So, I mean, we can't just be these people of rules and regulations. I mean, uh, although, you know, in life there are rules and regulations, right? But I mean, that empathy, that's got to be at the top of that list, right, Bill? I mean, that is the most important thing to me as a Catholic uh, and as a, you know, and as a person of, of goodwill, right? No matter what religion or non-religion we are, uh, we got to be empathetic to people, to their suffering, to what they've been through. Um, on a side note, I'll have a book coming out this year called Love and Care for the Marginalized. So I'm excited about that and um, be, probably be published sometime this year. It's a book of 40 meditations. So that sounds wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited. Um, you know, I want, the, I want these kids to know that they can make a difference in the world, in somebody's life. Mm -hmm. um, and it can be a very small thing they do or it could be huge. Yeah. You know, if, if there's a new kid at school, invite them in, get to know them, mm -hmm. yeah. introduce them exactly. to other people, help them form a friendship circle of, of, of you know, who are going to, who they can hang out with. Yeah. Um, don't push them aside because they're new or different mm. or their family speaks a different language at home or you know, the mother cooks different food than you, you know, that kid brings in different food that you don't bring into your lunchbox. Who cares? Try it. Trade. Right. Oh, no, I, I couldn't agree with you more. It's, it's such an honor for us to host you on this podcast. And, um, yeah. and for us, you know, we are celebrating Holy Week and, and, and in the Jewish tradition, Passover, a perfect time to have you on this, yeah. Thank you. on this podcast. Yes. Um, I, I didn't know if you had any other uh, things that are happening for you this coming year as well, because, you know, here we are supposedly, right? We're going to be coming out of this pandemic. It's going to be great when we finally are. And I wondered if you had any other plans or things that you wanted to let our audience know about. Um, well, I get my vaccine tomorrow, so I'm okay. so happy. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but, you know, go out there. If you have a chance to get your own vaccine, please get it. Science works. Um, that's one message I have for people. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I had all kinds of things coming up when the pandemic hit and then it all got stopped. And right, right now, I really don't have those plans made for this coming year. Mm -hmm. It's been a little rough, you know, things have been on the, the, the book has sort of been on the back burner for me because it's, it's been, the focus has been on, uh, me taking care of other people this mm -hmm. year. Uh, trying to help my yes. my mother with her Instacart shopping and mm. um, my father's health has been failing. So there's been some, you know, trying to just be supportive from a distance and gunning down there when I can. Um, I need to get out there more. You know, now, you know, that we're winding down, I need to start fill, filling up my schedule with school talks. So mm. the schedule's kind of open. Yeah. Um, I am available. Um, I do have a couple of other books in my brain that haven't come out onto paper yet that I would like to write, but um, this has not been the year for, for me to be able to focus on, on doing that. So um, there's a book, I would love to see a book written and maybe I'm the one to do it, of short stories around these falsified documents that um, like this Paraguayan passport um, and how they helped different families in different ways. 
And they basically, very quickly, those passports came out of a group of Polish diplomats in Switzerland who were not Jewish. So we had Polish Catholic diplomats in Switzerland who were working with Jewish leaders in Switzerland and they were creating these fake passports um, and sending them all over Europe to save people. And it's an unknown story. And I I wanna just capture those moments where the passports um, help someone in a certain way because Mm. I'm not gonna give it away but it significantly helped my mother's family. We'll have to keep an eye on your website then. Um, And it's kheidifishman.com. I would love it if I could do that in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, first of all, you're doing incredible work and I just want people to realize Mm -hmm. that, you know, you're doing amazing work. And, uh, you know, first of all, anytime when, I mean, we are now in 2021 folks, it is really hard to talk to Holocaust survivors and those people who interface with them. It just, it is really hard. Uh, I, I, I know I've talked to several in my life and we've had different opportunities, but I was in grade school, which was, you know, 20 years ago, 20, 25 years ago when I was in grade school, we, we had different opportunities to talk with them. But the reality is today, for, for young people today to have opportunities to encounter uh, Holocaust survivors and their memories and to keep the memories alive like Heidi has done, you know, for for this next generation because it's so important, I think, uh, for, for young people to to do those small little things that can make a difference. You know, one of the things you said that stuck with me is, you know, that children can make a difference in their lives. It doesn't have to be the biggest thing. But the amazing thing is, I, I, like, I just think about that doll that you're talking about. And that had to be one of the most significant moments of your mother's life, to to take care of that doll. I mean, clearly, it's, it, it's a... Um, it's a centerpiece of the story for you, but it's it's also a um, reminder for for everyone else that that small little acts have big effects and big ripples, um, and and so uh, maybe just touch on the the um, lastly as we wind down here, just just the um, environment that we're living in, and you know instilling in young people and really all people. Um, how to interface with others, how to, you know, overcome the bigotry and hatred that we see out there today, because there's, there's so much of it. You know, we've, we've seen this rise up during the pandemic in different ways. And I would just love to, you know, hear your perspective on, on how we as a society can overcome that. Well, part of it is to get out of our own little bubbles Uh, if we, a lot of social media is what people are relying on right now. And when you're on social media, you depend on the people that are most like you to give you what, what they're seeing in the world. And you see less of what people that are different than you might be seeing. So it's to get out of your bubble and talk to people who are different than you talk to people who come from a different perspective learn from them. You don't always have to agree with everything they say, but be willing to have that conversation where you learn something new say, oh, it never occurred to me to look at that that way. That's interesting. Hmm, I wonder how much of that I want to take in on my own or versus how much of that I want to, um, no, that doesn't quite jive for me. And you can do that in a very polite way. I, I think we've, we've lost that, um, 
the fine art of of conversation and debate people don't do that anymore yeah. they just like oh, yeah they just like oh i don't agree turn it off you know and we, we have to stop doing that yeah. um and then also realize that when i say somebody who's different the different the different part of them is very small compared to the same part of them mm. you know so you're catholic and i'm jewish Okay, so so we so on you know on Sunday or, or Friday or Saturday whatever we we kind of maybe you know pray in a different way, mm -hmm. but hey, what's the same? We're both interested in empathy and people getting along with each other and taking care of the marginalized other person who doesn't have an opportunity in life. We have so much more the same than we have different, mm -hmm. and too often people see that little bit that's different. The 1% that's different and they forget the 99% that's the same. Mm. Yeah. Well said. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. It's great. It's wonderful. Not only to have you on this podcast, but to make a new friend, right? I mean, yeah. it's, and, and like you said, I mean, what separates people is a lot uh, smaller than we realize because really the most important thing is love in this world and all of us can love. Right. And, isn't that an amazing do. thing? Yes. We do love, you know, everybody loves somebody. Mm -hmm. you know? So that's right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Amen. Well, thank Heidi. Thank you so very much. Uh, please give us the websites and everything again so that, um, you know, people okay, can go so the, and get the book. Okay. So the book is named Tootie's Promise, T-U-T-T-I apostrophe S promise. Um, it is um, available you know, Amazon or your local bookstore, you can ask them to order it, Audible, uh, Kindle. My website is Papia and Me, P-O-P-J-E and Me.com. Or if you go to HeidiFishman.com or Tootiespromise.com, it'll redirect you right to it. So if that's easier to remember. And uh, right now I'm, I am giving away free ebooks to teachers. My publishers agreed for 50 books to be given to teachers. If they just go onto my website, find the little link that says free book it, uh, and you can sign up for a free ebook and I'm trying to get it more into the classrooms. There's, there's some schools that are using it on a regular basis, but it'd be nice to hit a few more schools. Um, and again, if you, if you get the book and you read it, um, go to the website to get the add-ons. There's videos of my mom telling parts of the story. There's more pictures. There's more documents. Um, there's questions. So there, there's a lot of information there. And my whole blog, the whole how did I write the book blog is, is down there too. <laughs> mm, wonderful. Can I just make a shout out to anyone who's listening, if you're an educator, whether you work in the public school system, private school or the Catholic schools as well, mm -hmm. please do contact Heidi. I mean, this is the perfect book for your school district. It really is. So uh, I, I just can't say that enough that anyone's listening who is an educator, uh, you want to get your hands on it and you want to present this to your school district. Thank you. Thank, thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, folks, uh, thank you for joining us on this Holy Thursday, on this Passover uh, episode of sowing hope we really do appreciate you uh tuning in and being a part of our show but until next time from all of us here at patchwork heart ministry keep sowing hope into broken hearts and beating to your catholic heart mm -hmm.
Thanks for listening to this episode of Sewing Hope on Patchwork Heart Radio. For more information about this podcast and our ministries, visit our websites, patchworkheart.org and andesantis.com. You can also follow and interact with us on Twitter at PWH Ministry or andesantis2. Over 2,000 years ago, two disillusioned disciples walked along a dusty road to Emmaus. They had just witnessed Jesus, their friend and leader, whom they hoped to be the Messiah, suffer a gruesome death by crucifixion. Doubt, fear, and uncertainty clouded their conversation as they journeyed home questioning the future. Until something miraculous happened. The risen Jesus appeared and answered their questions. Today, many young Catholics step onto college campuses with numerous questions about their faith, yearning to know if the seed of faith given to them as a child is both true and practical. Using the miracle on the road to Emmaus as a model, young adult ministers conversed weekly for three months with college students about the most pressing questions they had about the Catholic faith. As they journeyed together virtually, something amazing happened. Doubts disappeared, fears faded, and Jesus revealed that he is still alive. Hearts Burning Within Us, the latest book from Patchwork Heart Ministry, scheduled to be released in the summer of 2021, is a result of that grace-infused conversation. To pre-order your copy and help spread the word about the book, visit patchworkheart.org.